Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week. And this week I'm speaking with Dr Neil Bell, who is a bryologist at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh. It's a particularly fitting podcast as tomorrow is National Moss Day. So we thought we would delve into the hidden world of moss with Neil and find out a bit more about this often misunderstood and overlooked plant. Hi Neil, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am really interested to hear first and foremost about your new book, uh, The Hidden World of Mosses, which was published by the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh. Um, But before we kind of delve into um, what's in the book and kind of well, the hidden world of mosses (laughs) and what we we can find out about them, um, I'm quite interested to hear what attracted you to biology? Because it's, I guess it's quite a niche topic of, uh, of study. That's a very good question. It's, it's not something which many people tend to find they're interested in until perhaps later in life. It's, yeah. it's, it's not something you tend to learn about at school. It's, it's not a, a widely known area. And for me, it was really just finding myself in a situation. I was, I was doing some, uh, some just broad brush survey work for the Scottish Wildlife Trust about 20, 30 years ago. And I was up in uh, these upland ecosystems in Scotland, which are actually, as I now know, quite diverse for bryophytes. What these are, bryophytes are mosses, liverworts and hornworts, these three groups that we, we refer to together as bryophytes. And I realised there was this huge diversity I didn't know anything about. And once you discover that diversity is there, and it's not something you've ever heard about before, it's sort of like uh, another world opens up, a veil is, mm. is taken away from... Uh, what was previously a completely hidden area of biodiversity. It's a bit like discovering that there's a, another planet or another dimension of diversity yeah. uh, actually around you all the time, which you previously weren't aware of. And for me, that was the initial fascination. Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads very nicely into the title of the book and explains where that title came from. It is out now, right, for people to to purchase and read. 
Yes, yes. So it's available from the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh and also from various various other bookshops as well. Fantastic. And what when you were writing the book, what was your kind of main ambition or your hope for the book and what people would take away from it? So I think I'd always had this idea that there was a niche for a book about about mosses and bryophytes, which uh, which was internationally based, so told you everything you might want to know about these organisms from a, uh, not just from a sort of local ID perspective, and also which was aimed at a, a general audience, not at a, mm. an academic audience or, or, or students. And I think just recently, in, in, in the past five or ten years, we've suddenly got available this huge... Um, a diversity of just really amazing photographs of bryophytes. So, so one of the, uh, I would say perhaps maybe the most attractive thing about my book is the the photographs that are taken by by Des Callahan, who's an amazing bryophyte photographer, and the development of digital photography in particular in the past five or ten years has meant that people are able, if they have the, the skill that Des has, to to do these incredible close up photographs of bryophytes. And, and this is instrumental, really, because I think people uh, aren't aware of of just how diverse and how beautiful bryophytes are because they're not used to looking at them at the, the right scale. This is a little bit smaller than things we're, we're used to looking at. So we tend to just not be aware of that diversity which is there, which, which digital photography can, can reveal. the the front cover image it is not what I would have expected from kind of the hidden world of mosses and obviously this is not a visual podcast so yeah. uh, maybe you can kind of try and describe it and and explain to me what it is as well yeah so this is a a, a tropical epiphytic moss which um and I think what we're what we're seeing there uh is it, it, that that particular photograph shows very well the the translucency of the leaves that the that the moss has, mm-hmm. and that was part of the reason that image was was chosen. So, so the thing about bryophytes is, so when I say bryophytes, I mean largely mosses, but also liverworts and hornworts. Uh, is that they they sort of do things in a different way from the rest of plants. So, so about roughly maybe five hundred million years ago, there was a, a split between. In, in land plants between the group, which we, we now call vascular plants, which includes most of the plants we know, that's flowering plants and, and ferns and conifers and all the rest. And then the other group of land plants is the bryophytes, that's the mosses, liverworts and hornworts. And, and this group have taken a different approach and that's largely defined by their relationship to water. So whereas most plants we, we're aware of, uh, they, they, they need to be constantly hydrated most of the time in order to live and to thrive and to survive. And generally, most plants will die if they if they dry out. There are some which have some degree of desiccation tolerance. But but bryophytes are, many bryophytes are very desiccation tolerant. They can dry out completely and, and survive for long periods and then rehydrate when, uh, when conditions allow. Um, and this means that on the one hand, they, they can survive drying out, but on the other hand, they, they also will dry out very quickly if it's, if it's not wet. So they need this constant availability of moisture to, to continually thrive and to outcompete other plants. So that's why we find that mosses and liverworts are most diverse in habitats which are continually wet, not just habitats which have a lot of rainfall, but where that rainfall is spread 
reasonably evenly throughout the year. So they they always have this um, opportunity to 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 be hydrated and to and to photosynthesize. And this lifestyle comes is associated with various other attributes. Like for instance, bryophytes tend not to have well developed vascular systems. So because they're they're getting their water and the nutrients directly from the environment in a very real time sort of way, sort of going with the ebb and flow of the availability of, of water and nutrients. They're not needing to store uh, water to the same extent and to transport it around the plant. So they tend to be quite simple structurally in that sense. And that also ties in with their size. And that's really why mosses are so small uh, relative to other plants, because this particular lifestyle they have, this relationship to water, means that it's very difficult for them to be much larger than a few centimetres tall. And this is really is, comes back to the what I was trying to achieve in this book, because the thing is about bryophytes is because they have this scale, mm. and it's not it's not microscopic, it's not like um, uh, microorganisms or diatoms, something like that, where you actually need a microscope to see them. Yeah. At the same time, it's not so big that we can actually see the detail which is there. So we're aware of them all the time. We, we, we're aware of this stuff called, called moss around us that's growing on the tops of of, of, of walls or in buildings or on our lawn. And we and that's the problem. We see it as a, a substance rather than as a collection of individual plants, which if they were smaller, we wouldn't see them at all. We wouldn't be aware of them. If they were larger, we'd see this incredible detail and this, this, this um, amazing beauty and diversity which they have. But because they're in that sort of uncomfortable intermediate scale, we need to make a bit of, it, a bit of effort to look at them more closely to see uh, the, the diversity which is there. So that's a large part of what I was trying to achieve with this book and, and especially with the aid of the photography. Yeah, so really trying to open people's eyes to their benefits and and change the people's perception of moss, would you say? Exactly, yeah. So, so again, it, because people see moss as a substance, as a almost as a sort of amorphous green stuff which is growing on top of the wall they tend to have a negative um uh, approach to it yeah. so they tend to because they're not seeing the uh the the difference between the individual plants they're not seeing how how interesting and actually how beautiful they are so that tends to create uh, an attitude of well it's just this this slightly uncomfortable looking green stuff which I want to scrape off and really yeah. what you have to do is just look a bit more closely and see actually it's not it's not a substance it's not it's not a stuff it's actually a collection of of hundreds or thousands of little plants with leaves and with uh, with other structures which which you won't find in other plants so it's actually mm. uh, actually very interesting features which which don't occur in other any other plants that we're familiar with yeah, and you mentioned lawns there as well, and it growing on lawns. I imagine that is something that people typically would want to get rid of on their lawns. So why would you suggest that they don't? Well, it's, I mean, I would say that uh, moss on lawns is actually quite attractive. and mm, uh, I think it looks magical, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's also quite comfortable to sit on, to be honest. I mean, it's, uh, mm. as long as it's not soaking wet, it's, it's, actually, quite, uh, it's actually quite soft and nice to sit on. It's... Uh, um, it's quite it's quite varied in its texture, uh, so I would say just leave it alone. And speaking of kind of 
some of the benefits that um, moss can bring. There were two particularly interesting ones that I thought we could explore. Um, and the first was the role that they that moss plays in climate change prevention. So what exactly is this role? So probably the biggest uh, way in which bryophytes contribute to preventing climate change is the fact that uh, certain species of bryophytes, certain uh, 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 types of moss in particular are acting as a, a massive carbon sink. So it's not so much that they're preventing uh, climate change uh, actively uh, from now onwards, although they are to some extent, but it's largely that they, they, uh, certain bryophyte-rich ecosystems represent massive carbon sinks, and we need to keep these carbon sinks as they are and not allow the, the carbon which is uh, which is in these places to escape into the atmosphere and contribute to to, to further climate change. So the, uh, the the habitat I'm talking here is is, is mainly mire ecosystems. So <clears throat> what we would call bogs or or, or sphagnum bogs. Right. So uh, if you live in uh, in Ireland or in certain parts of the uh, very large parts of the uh, uh, the Highlands of Scotland, large parts of landscape are covered in this habitat that we call blanket bog. And this is basically peatland. Uh, it's habitat where the soil is, is peat, which is basically undecomposed organic matter. It's uh, undecomposed moss. And on the, on the top layer of this, of this soil, of this type of soil, which, which we call peat, is, is, is a layer of living sphagnum moss. And what this is doing is the Sphagnum species are adapted to uh, to maintain this habitat in this particular state and to prevent decomposition of the peat underneath, which would lead to the release of this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So sphagnum moss is like a giant sponge. It, it has this very specialised structure of its cells, which allows it to hold vast amounts of water relative to its its volume inside its its tissues. Okay. And this keeps the habitat permanently wet. It, it creates a sort of wet blanket over the soil. It also keeps it very acidic, which prevents decomposition. And this means that as the sphagnum grows and as the the uh, the lower parts of the plant die, it they die but they don't decompose. So so you have peat is basically uh, often hundreds of meters of undecomposed moss that's accumulated over hundreds of thousands of years and represents a basically a carbon store which we have to keep there in the soil to stop it being released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and the way we keep it there is by keeping that surface layer of sphagnum intact because that's it's that um that living active layer of that that wet blanket of sphagnum if you like which is keeping that that carbon in the soil and it's a significant amount of carbon it's uh, uh, about 20% of the carbon stored on land in natural habitats is actually in the form of peat. Mm. So it's, uh, it's really quite a huge amount. So it's really important that we, we maintain peatland ecosystems. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I was actually, the, the, the kind of second benefit that I was going to touch upon was how it is able to hold and control water. But I think you had another kind of example of how that works. Yes, so um, particularly in habitats where so, so so all mosses are able to uh, 
uh, absorb water quite quickly and then they'll also dry out again quite quickly when when it's dry. Uh, sphagnum is sort of almost a bit of an exception if you like and it tends to be maintain itself almost continually moist but there are many habitats in which you have a large biomass of bryophytes so uh, so sort of wet heathland habitats, for example, in the tropics where you have uh, very mossy um, cloud forests where you have lots of what we call epiphytic bryophytes growing in the trees. It's almost like the trees are, are covered in almost like a lagging of, uh, of moss. Uh, these um, ecosystems, because of the, the biomass of the moss that's there, will very quickly absorb a lot of water when it rains. Uh, and then uh, gradually release it over a, a more prolonged period of days um, after the rain ceases. Mm -hmm. So, so it's basically yeah. acting as a buffer. So this is why the maintenance of of particularly sort of upland habitats in in the United Kingdom, which are uh, are very bryophyte rich and bogs sort of fall into that category, all certain sort of wet heath, wet heath habitats and uh, and other. Uh, mossy forest habitats in other parts of the world. Uh, if we maintain them, we're maintaining, if you like, uh, an aquatic buffer system against the, the risk of flooding. So if you imagine you have a massive downpour and all this rain is just immediately flowing down uh, from the tops of the hills into the valleys and into the rivers, then you're very suddenly going to have um, a, a, a flooding situation on your hands. But if you imagine that rather than that happening, uh, all these bryophytes, when it rains, are very quickly, within seconds or minutes, absorbing a lot of this water yeah. uh, and then keep it in their tissues. Um, and then over then a space of, of, of days, gradually releasing again into the rivers, it just basically means that the flow of water through that habitat is, is slowed down and buffered mm. and thus uh, flooding is less likely than it would be otherwise. This might be a really stupid question, but does it also help when we're considering things like climate change? Could it also help if it's storing water and kind of feeding it out to that habitat slower? Could it potentially help with the issues around drought and heavy rainfall and then no rainfall for, for a period of time? Or am I on the completely wrong track? Yeah, no, no, no. That, that's, that, that's sort of, I mean, in many ways, that's sort of what I was describing. Um, okay. I mean, uh, it's... It's important to me not only for preventing flooding, but things like soil erosion. Uh, right, so yeah. things, there are many things related to, uh, to the flow of water through ecosystems, which, uh, which are very damaging. So, I mean, as what we know about the way climate change is happening is the uh, the frequency of certain extreme climatic events is increasing. So the frequency of extreme flooding events uh, will be one of the things which is we would expect to increase on average throughout the world as a result of climate change. So that's one thing which, which bryophytes can help mitigate against. So if you, um, it's particularly relevant to places that have very bryophyte rich forests, perhaps in uh, particularly in the tropics and where if, if these forests are cleared, particularly in, in mountain ecosystems on, on steep hillsides, then the risk of um, of, of flooding events and, and soil erosion is is greatly increased. So just by simply by keeping these bryophyte-rich habitats intact in various parts of the world, we're we're just um, adding one more string to our, our bow of possible protective systems against the effects of some of the more extreme effects of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. 
And is moss something you could introduce into a habitat or landscape, or is it really just about protecting what we have already? So it's mainly about protecting what we have already. Mosses tend to disperse very well. So they uh, we're used to most plants we know of dispersing by, by seeds. Uh, in fact, mosses, like, like, most, like, like ferns, disperse by spores mostly, and spores are tiny structures they're able in general to disperse over very large distances so so most mosses or there will be some mosses always which don't have a problem getting about so in general mosses will grow where they're able to grow so uh, we almost don't have to introduce them they'll, they'll, they'll find their own way there um there's uh there's an extent to which i suppose i mean bryophytes are very good um they're very good colonists so if you have a uh, a disturbed environment, say if you have a, a tree that falls in the forest and you have a lot of bare soil, then the first plants that move in to that habitat will be will be bryophytes, mosses and liverworts. And um, and that will sort of help to, to, to get things going. It's the first step in succession, if you like. The other thing is that because, and again, this relates to the relationship with water, they, they don't have roots. So, so bryophytes are getting their, their water, the nutrients from the atmosphere and from the immediate um uh, above ground environment they're not taking it up from the soil through roots so that means they can grow on on rock and on there are many species that will grow directly in rock and on bark as epiphytes uh, and other sort of bare habitats that don't yet have any soil so so bryophytes are are often the first organisms are one of the the main groups of organisms involved in soil creation in the first place so because they're able to grow in places that don't have soil, they're also in the process of growing there, creating soils. So, um, so yes, yeah, so we, we, we almost don't need to, to actually start this process off. It's something which will, will, will happen by itself. There will always be bryophyte spores in the atmosphere, which will, will, uh, will find appropriate places to grow. Yeah, very clever. Um, so what are some of the most interesting species of moss that you've either encountered or, or in your book, which I assume if they're very interesting and you've encountered them, they will be in your book. But yeah, talk us through some different species. So I'm particularly interested in uh, in the bryophytes we have in, in Scotland. And because Scotland has mm. a, uh, actually, a, we tend to think of Scotland as very rainy and uh, we tend to think of that as a bit of a, a dull mm. climate. But actually it's a very rare climate on, from a global perspective. Uh it's what we call an oceanic ecosystem, so especially on the the north and the well, the west coast of Britain as a whole, but particularly the north and west of Scotland has uh, really an extremely uh, continually wet and really rather mild ecosystem in terms of the way that the temperature doesn't fluctuate much between summer and winter. And on a global scale, this is actually a really rare climate. So as a result of that, we have certain bryophyte communities growing in in Scotland and in the western parts of Britain, which are very rare elsewhere in the world. So particularly, in particular, we have what we call temperate rainforests. So so I think people are just now beginning to get their heads around the concept that we have rainforest in in Britain. It's in the past when people use the term rainforest, they tended to apply it exclusively to to tropical rainforest. Mm -hmm. But actually, we have rainforest in Britain. This is forest which is pretty much continually wet and um, and in, in in temperate areas this rainforest supports a huge diversity of organisms particularly in the form of bryophytes and lichens and other 
groups which were able to exploit this continually moist environment. So, uh, so as a result of this, we have certain species in Scotland which are not found in very many parts of the world at all. And uh, if we extend that viewpoint to some of the other oceanic systems we have, like we have certain very wet heat ecosystems in our uplands, there are things like, um, there are certain liverwort species which occur in Scotland and then maybe occur in the Himalayas and then nowhere else in the world. So they're, they're literally uh, disjunct between Scotland and the Himalayas. And they also are, are quite dramatic species where liverworts are very large. They have this sort of quite dramatic swept over appearance. We actually have a, an endemic liverwort in Scotland uh, called Hubertus borealis, mm. which only really grows in the Ben A area of, of northwest Scotland. And that occurs nowhere else in the world. And it's a very beautiful thing. It's a very, um, it's a sort of bright orange red mm. species with dramatically swept over leaves, which are sort of two prongs on them. And as far as we know, this doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. It's, it's possible it also occurs in Himalayas and hasn't been mm. discovered yet, but uh, that's something we, we've, we've yet to find out. So, 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 I, so I love these species. I also love, um, there are certain uh, bryophytes which are very unusual, even amongst bryophytes, in terms of the, the way they interact with their environment. So there's a particular family called the Splachnaceae. It's, uh, it's a difficult uh, term to pronounce, but these are, it's a family of mosses which, in which many of the species use insects to disperse their spores. So the vast majority of spore producing plants will disperse their spores by, by wind because they're, because spores are very small things which do disperse easily by wind. Uh, but there's one family of mosses which will actually attract insects to disperse their spores. And the reason they do this, or the reason this uh, ability has evolved is in parallel with their preference for growing on on dung and on uh, decaying um uh, dead animals, so uh, uh, including bones, uh, but also particularly reindeer dung, uh, things like that. So if you imagine that you're a moss and you you can only grow on reindeer dung, uh, how do you how do you find the next bit of reindeer dung? <laughs> so so one way to do this is to to attract flies, disperse your spores, which are also going to be attracted to the reindeer dung, and they're going to fly between one bit of reindeer oh, dung and the next. So so if you uh, if you Google on, online, if you go to Google and you type Splachnum rubrum or Splachnum luteum, you'll get these amazing pictures up of these things that look like mushrooms, sort of big um, uh, big sort of orange parasols or, or yellow parasols. Mm-hmm. And you would think that these are the fruiting bodies of mushrooms. In fact, they're the sporophytes of, of Splachnum. And, and they're, they're dramatic and colourful because they're attracting insects to disperse their spores. And uh, and find the bit the next bit of reindeer dung. So I'm particularly fond of that family. <laughs> that is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Another aspect of this family is that the this capacity to uh, to to grow these almost mushroom-like sporophytes, which attract insects, has evolved independently in different parts of the world. So we have very similar-looking things in in Tasmania and in uh, in Norway which uh, are doing exactly the same thing there. They have these mushroom-like sporophytes, which, uh, which attract insects and disperse the spores, but they've evolved independently in these different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. They sound like they're pretty resilient. 
is there is there anything threatening uh, biophytes though? Yeah, unfortunately, like 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 all aspects of biodiversity, they 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 have significant threats in in the current situation we're in. So, I mean, climate change is a significant threat to uh, to to many bryophytes, particularly so, um, if if the climate change changes, so extreme weather events are are more common. We might expect some of the bryophytes that adapt to these continually moist environments to to suffer, particularly in places like the west coast of Scotland. Um, in fact, many of the threats to bryophytes are the threats that exist for for many other groups of organisms as well, just simply habitat destruction. So right. uh, so, so many bryophytes are, are, are rich, particularly in the tropics and in forest ecosystems. So the, the, the most biodiverse places on the planet for bryophytes are, are probably forest ecosystems and particularly uh, uh, tropical cloud forest ecosystems. So, uh, so simply by by protecting these forest ecosystems, we protect the bryophytes. Things like, in, if we're looking closer to home, obviously, uh, I mentioned peatland ecosystems earlier, sphagnum bogs. So, just yeah. keeping these ecosystems intact. So, historically, they've been um, uh, they've been drained for for agriculture. Uh, so that's that's obviously not not good. We have. Um, uh, some quite unusual threats, perhaps, or threats that people might not be aware of mm. to bryophyte-rich ecosystems in Scotland. For instance, just, just simply introduced species like Rhododendron ponticum is actually a, a major threat to, oh, right. to very bryophyte-rich uh, uh, temperate oak woodland in, in the west coast of, of Scotland, simply because it's a really invasive species. It chokes out uh, uh, these very bryophyte-rich habitats and uh, and basically shades out bryophytes. So um, and that's a very difficult problem to control. Um, things like uh, muir burns. So um, as climate change um, uh, results in more extreme prolonged dry periods, and the risk of of peatland fires is increased, and that could be very very threatening to um, uh, to certain bryophyte communities. Uh, again, looking more globally. Uh, just habitat modification, building of dams, um, modification of coastal ecosystems to uh, for tourism, uh, all these things are potentially damaging to, to bryophyte communities. How much more do you think there is to discover about moss or bryophytes? Lots and lots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yeah, just simply because uh, they, for the same reasons that, um, that most people don't know much about bryophytes, they've they've also just simply been less studied than other groups of yeah. plants over um, over decades and centuries. And and they're more difficult to study, perhaps they're smaller, they're they're less well understood. So 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 in almost any area of biology you could think of, or any area of botany you could think of, whether that's taxonomy or or ecology or physiology, we know less about mosses than we do about other plants. So um, if you're interested in botany and you think you might think that there's nothing left to be discovered, which of course isn't the case. But if you did think that, <laughs> then the group to get into is bryophytes because there's so much more to be discovered and things which uh, really fundamental things as well. So, so one example I could give you is um, uh, stomata. So we, you, you may know that in in vascular plants, leaves have have stomata. So that these um, these pores on the top of the leaf surface that allow uh, carbon dioxide 
and oxygen to be exchanged with the atmosphere. So, mm. um, so they're fundamental in photosynthesis in, in vascular plants. Uh, it, in, in bryophytes, we have stomata in some groups. So we have in mosses, stomata exist on the sporophytes. So the sporophytes are this, um, the, the non-green part of the moss plant that produces the spores. So it's a less permanent structure than the green leafy part of the moss. And the odd thing is that these stomata exist on the sporophytes, but they don't exist on the, the green leafy gamet gametophytes because it's the gametophytes that are, are photosynthetic. And it's only just very recently we we now pretty much know that that's because these stomata in, in mosses are doing something completely different from what they're doing in, in vascular plants. They're probably not involved in, in gas exchange and photosynthesis at all, but rather what they're doing is... Uh, they're involved in the process of allowing the sporophyte to dry out in order to then release its spores. So it's, uh, mm. uh, it's, its function is completely different. So the question mm. then is, has it evolved independently in mosses or is there a single origin of, of stomata way back uh, 500 million years ago when, when mosses and vascular plants shared a, a common ancestor and these structures have, have diverged and adapt to do completely different things? If you think about it, a stomata is quite a simple thing. It's just uh, it's just two two cells together, which uh, can uh, can become hydrated or dehydrate, and then and then close off a pore. So it may be something which has evolved, which could have evolved independently, or it may be something which has common origin, and which has then adapted to do something completely different in mosses. Yeah. So that's just one example. Uh, in in my own line of work, I'm very interested. I, I'm a taxonomist, a, a systematist. So I'm interested in in what species are, and particularly in relation to these, some of these species I mentioned earlier, which are these very disjunct distributions between, say, Scotland and the Himalayas, and then occur occur nowhere else in the world. Well, I mean, are they actually the same thing? I mean, are, if if we find this what looks like an identical species of, of liverwort in in Scotland and in the Himalayas, and it doesn't occur anywhere else in the world, then you might think, well, actually, is it really the same thing, or um, yeah. or or is or is it just uh, that? A very similar morphology has has evolved independently in these two places, so we can explore these questions with uh, uh, with, with with new types of data like uh, genome sequencing uh, to discover well are, are these actually this thing that we think is the same thing which occurs in Scotland Himalayas is actually the same thing, or is it a completely different thing? So lots to be discovered. So interesting. Well, we're excited to hear more about what's going to come out of all of this uh, this research and your work, for sure. So my last question is one we always ask our guests, and that is, what plant would you take to a desert island? I'm assuming it's going to be a bryophyte. Yeah, but... so I, I had this question in mind because I, I, I saw the... Uh, I was warned in advance that you might ask this question. So, uh, um, <laughs> And I, I must admit, I went to Google. I wasn't exactly sure what we mean by a desert island and I, so I did google it and a desert island is a, a deserted island it's not a it's not an island which is is covered in sand and doesn't do anything growing on it so it's a, it's an island with no people on it so um so it's, it's all mm. used to think of a desert island as being a um an island ecosystem so a, maybe a small island in the pacific or the atlantic which already is quite diverse as a um as a, a quite unique island ecosystem on it and there's a good chance that it's already quite bryophyte rich so if it has mountains it probably has uh, it, it might have um, a tropical cloud forest on top of which is already very bryophyte rich uh, the chances are all these 
uh, well, all the diversity that's on that island has has come there over uh, over thousands of years, and mm. so I wouldn't really want to disturb that. So, nice. <laughs> I, okay, I would be reluctant to take anything to the desert island. I, I just like to just go there and and see what's there, and yeah. I'd be reluctant to introduce. I'd be reluctant to bring anything to that desert island which might uh, which might which might spread and and change the the nature of that ecosystem which has. Yeah. itself over a long time and also uh as i was saying earlier bryophytes are very good dispersers so they disperse by spores so they tend to just get there anyway so um uh we don't need to bring them we can just let them arrive yeah yeah exactly. yeah <laughs> uh, in, oh. in the way they want to do so great well that is a, that is a first for me i've never <laughs> had that answer before so yeah very interesting though you just go and soak it all in yeah, I'm assuming I'm allowed to opt out, of course, of that. But, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I could bring some dry bryophytes to look at, perhaps. Yes, yeah, good like. idea. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've certainly learned so much, and it's been so interesting to find out more because it's it's something that I definitely haven't um, much knowledge about. So, um, And you're very good at explaining it in a way that I can understand. So that's a real skill. So thank you so much. I definitely have a newfound appreciation. Thanks very much. I very much, very much enjoyed it. I'm Rachel Forsyth and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again to Neil and goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.